BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Thanks for downloading the Highly Relevant Podcast. But before we begin the show, I want to talk to you about the All of Us Research Program. Hispanics are the largest ethnic minorities in the USA, up to 18% of the population. However, we are underrepresented in research studies, only 10%. This gap means that researchers know less about our health. Hispanics deserve to be represented in studies so we can know more about our health and be as healthy as possible. As our population grows, so should our participation. Create a better future by participating. Just visit joinallofus.org slash highly relevant. Welcome to episode 160 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a show about how Latinx pop culture is reshaping mainstream entertainment. I'm your host, Jack Rico, and my featured guest this week... We are reinventing colonialism in Mexico. We are perpetuating it long after the, the Spanish soldiers have been gone. There's this systematization of violence, and it's us who are who are doing this. That's Rodrigo Reyes, the director of the new film 499. It's a movie about Spanish colonialism and its impact on the people of Mexico today. Him and I are going to be talking about how he got his movie funded and what inspired him to make this film. And I also talked to Stanford professor Tomas Jimenez about the latest census numbers. What do they really mean for Latinos? But before we get to Tomas and Rodrigo, it's time I give you my weekly recap of the top Latinx pop culture headlines in a segment I like to call Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie TV music news of the week. Broadway actresses Ana Villafaña and Bianca Marroquín will reopen the Broadway musical Chicago on September 14th. Jungle Cruise sequel is in the works at Disney with Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt returning. Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almodovar arrive at the Venice Film Festival for their film Madres Paralelas. Netflix will release the full Seinfeld library on its platform October 1st. Yalitza Paricio is on the cover of El Mexico. There's a new trailer of James Bond No Time to Die. Rosalia teams up with Takesha for their new single Linda. Camila Cabello is starring in the live-action remake of Cinderella out on Amazon Prime Video Now, and the New York Latino Film Festival will return September 14th through the 19th with a 20th anniversary celebration of Raising Victor Vargas. And in tech and social media news, LinkedIn will shut down its stories feature after September. Spotify has released Blend, a personalized playlist that will allow friends to discover the ways their musical tastes overlap. Google has postponed a full return to the office until next year. Twitter could be integrating a Bitcoin tipping feature onto its platform. TikTok picks streaming service Audius to power its new sounds library. Clubhouse adds spatial audio to create more immersive audio chats. Microsoft has announced that Windows 11 will be available on October 5th. Facebook now offers fantasy sports and pop culture games. And Alexa will now speak louder if it detects a lot of background noise. 
so the latest census numbers came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've read several articles and opinion pieces that say it's favorable for Latinos. But I'm still a bit unsure of what these latest numbers really mean to us Hispanics. Does it mean we're going to get more attention from politicians? Will we get more job promotions in corporate America? Will our stories become movie box office hits? When will we see the effects take place? This is why I call Tomas Jimenez. He's a professor and director of urban studies in the Department of Sociology at Stanford University and is the author of States of Belonging, Immigration Policies, Attitudes and Inclusion. He's been quoted in the New York Times and NPR, and I thought to give him a call and ask him some easy questions like, what does Latino mean in America today? Wow, you start with a small question. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it's a great it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I'm not as invested in what, what we call ourselves as I am in um, in having a, a real stake in in the fate of this country and this country having a real stake in in our fate and us kind of feeling like and and actually being um, full participants in American society and, and full contributors in in ways that maximizes our potential. And I don't mean the potential to kind of, you know, overwhelm the non-Hispanic white population, you know, to kind of, um, you know, instill fear with the fact that, you know, the, that the Latino population is, is growing rapidly. And to me, being full contributors in American society and being recognized as Latino, but also being recognized as American. As, as Americans, as people who are fully American. That last line that Tomas is referring to, being fully Latino and being fully American, well, that's the 200%er concept. It was coined by media executive Jackie Hernandez in 2014. It's what many U.S. Latinos use to describe how they feel when asked which of their heritage is stronger. Yet the debate about how we should label ourselves in this country is at an all-time high. The word Hispanic has a colonial past, Latino and Latina are not inclusive, and Latinx to a lot of people just sounds like a marketing term. So I asked Tomas what he thought of my radical idea of federally eliminating the word Hispanic and Latino from the American lexicon. We almost, um, and when I say we, I mean the country, almost adopted a new census form um, that did actually do away with the Hispanic question oh. and just ask everyone the kind of same, then had the Hispanic category and, and its kind of constituent parts under the kind of, combined it with the race question. And, and I think the folks at the census felt like that was a much better way to allow people to identify themselves. Apart from the media headlines of the slow population growth, whites declining, and Asians rising, Tomas was particularly interested in how the growth of Latinos didn't come from immigrants, but from U.S.-born Latinos. This was the first census taken uh, after what is appears to be, and, and this is with the exception of actually the last few months, but appears to be the end of mass Mexican immigration. We are becoming, and it's not just because of Mexican migration, but the slowing of other migration waves, we're becoming a much more U.S.-born population and much less immigrant population. And even during the height of, of, uh, of Latin American immigration going back 15 years or so, um, the U.S.-born individuals were still the, the overwhelming majority. But not only are we becoming more U.S.-born, you know, the, the, the ranks of the later generation, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants is starting to grow. And that changes how people orient themselves 
in, in relation to their ethnic identity and, and other things. What I read into what Tomas is saying is that Latinos in this country are going to be more American in identity for generations to come. And as a consequence, they're going to also interact with the world more in English than in Spanish. It seems inevitable. So what is Tomas's overall takeaway on the census for Latinos? Do growth numbers mean American success? There's often this magical thinking that so long as the population is growing, we'll have a voice politically, economically, and and socially. And it, it doesn't happen like that. It requires an investment, an investment on the part of Latinos in, in kind of having that voice heard, and then an investment on the part of the rest of the United States in, in kind of um, making space for that voice to be heard. And like Tomas said, I hope we can unify as a pan-ethnic group because the political, financial, and cultural power that we possess together, that's a force to be reckoned with. You can read Tomas Jimenez's book, States of Belonging, Immigration Policies, Attitudes, and Inclusion, out now. Before we get to Director Rodrigo Reyes, let me tell you about the All of Us Research Program. Hispanic culture is pop culture. We are leaving our mark everywhere from music to food to fashion. One place where we need to make an impact is scientific research. All of Us wants to include our voices in research so we have a better idea of how unique we are genetically and to see if we're prone to other diseases. Did you know individuals of Puerto Rican descent are roughly twice as likely to develop diabetes as someone with South American heritage? Join the revolution by participating in All of Us. Visit joinallofus.org slash highly relevant. Now to our interview with Rodrigo Reyes. Casi 500 años después, ¿qué te trajo a nuestro tiempo? Entramos a un pueblo y de inmediato arrasamos los templos. Lo he buscado durante cinco años. Yo no me resigno a esperar. Por mis oídos entran voces que me llaman. Era periodista y aparte era activista. Por cualquiera de las dos te matan. Mi hijo tiene cinco años, cuatro meses que no se debe. Es una obligación de ellos protegerlo. Vemos primero la zona, el tipo de suelo, si tiene olor a putefacto, ahí hay resto. ¿Con qué derecho esclavizaba yo a mis hermanos? ¿Qué será de mí? ¿Está bonita? Porque si yo en ese momento hubiera dicho sí, Ellos estuvieran muertos. Me hubieran pagado lo que le hicieron a mí. A los 17 años hice un examen para materiales de guerra, para incorporarme al colegio militar. Por dinero se sea lo que sea. Me pregunto, ¿qué fue de mi riqueza? ¿Dónde quedó mi gloria? The interview you're about to hear with Rodrigo Reyes, the director of the Mexican film 499, is an interesting and artistic concept about colonialism. This movie doesn't have a traditional narrative, and you need to leave all those tropes to the side. This is something unique and something very high concept, but it works. 
It's a documentary narrative that's experienced through the eyes of a ghostly Spanish conquistador who arrives in modern Mexico 500 years later after La Conquista to see and listen how the brutal legacy of Spanish colonialism has left an indelible trauma on Mexican society. And I would even argue the U.S. and the whole American continent. Let's begin with the first question, which is, how did this idea come to you? Because every time you come up with an idea, these ideas might not work, but why did you commit to this idea and why did you think that this idea would work? Hey, Jack. Well, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. And, uh, you know, 499 really comes from like a really urgent need, like a personal need to kind of grapple with this history, right? Like as a Mexican, you know, who grew up bicultural, I'm like, really hyper aware of our history and especially of this idea of the conquest right like we're always debating across mexico about whether this this was a conquest or what was it and you know how we have survived this conquista and i knew that you know 500 years were coming up 500 years since the fall of the of the aztec empire and the surrender of Cuauhtémoc, right and that when the when the spanish and their allies take over the the capital city of Tenochtitlan. So I knew that there was like a ticking clock that that was a great challenge for me as a filmmaker. Like, how do you do something about this history? And how do you make a film that isn't like a boring educational project that your world history teacher is going to play for you like on a lazy Friday, right? In high school. Like, mm -hmm. how do you actually make an interesting movie? And, and um, in that process, you know, I, I began to think like, wow, like, you know, um, we have this space, this space where things happened, right? We have like, like this, this path from Veracruz into Mexico City, right? That Cortez followed, and it's like a very famous journey that he took on this, on this landscape. So we have a space, we have a, a road for the road movie, but who are the characters, right? And one day, a producer friend of mine, Inti Cordera, who's on the film. He, he was saying, well, why don't we just bring back people from the past and what would they say, you know? What would they teach us about these places and, and, and how would that contrast with the present? Was that a corny, gimmicky thing that you at first said, oh, no, 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 I've seen these gringos do it before and it comes out like sketchy and funny. That's not me. I don't want to do this. I want to do art. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the idea seemed brilliant and then, I realized, wait a minute, like all the references I have are like Bill and Ted, right? Yeah. Like, all <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's a yeah. great example of it. Yeah. They're all comedies. And um and and so I was like, I'm not sure if this is this is supposed to be funny. And then I started looking at the at what was happening along the path of Cortez and I noticed that there was like a lot of stories of violence. And these stories were were really dramatic and very urgent. And, and as you started looking, right, like you go from Veracruz and you find that it's one of the states that is uh, the most de deadly to journalists, right? It's like a place where journalists have been killed for, for many years now. And then you start to connect the dots. Okay, like there's, there's also like indigenous resistance in the Sierra Madre, and then there's migrants that come through in Tlaxcala. And then so, so I started to see all these different sets of violence, you know, different types of violence that, that was manifesting itself in the present. And I said, 
okay, like that's where it's at. That's that's what I want the film to look at is like this connection between past and, pre and present violence, past and present violence. And and of course, the only character that could be there was the conquistador because the conquistador is, you know, like this artifact of power, right? He's a little soldier of power and to bring him back into Mexico suddenly, bam, like it, it made a lot of sense and it clicked because if he's on this journey and he's actually discovering these stories of violence, then there's a dialogue happening, right? Between past and present history. And then there's this like revelation of how, how this character of the conquistador has endured and survived to, to this very day. So we had like this, this genesis mm. of this idea, you know, like very simple, an actor playing the role very seriously. And, and then these people that, that I then had to set off to find and invite to collaborate with me on the film. But, but that once the idea clicked of like connecting these different violences, like I knew I had a little, I, I had an engine for the story. I had something that could push us through all these ideas of, of the present and history and why are we so violent in Mexico today? Why do we have this violence happening and what connection does it have with the past? You know, everything started to really kind of move for me. Your argument is that Mexico and its people are traumatized still 500 years later because of the colonization. And we have not been able to get over that. And what this movie does is it explores that trauma. How did you sell this to people? Yeah, so that's exactly the question, Jack. Like, how do you approach somebody who's looking for their disappeared loved one and is digging for mass graves across Veracruz? Or how do you approach the mom of a victim of feminicide? Or how do you approach a hitman, like, working for the cartels? Like, these are all real. Like, how do you get them involved in a project with a, with a conquistador in armor with a sword, like, traveling across Mexico? It could feel like a joke, right? And, and so I thought about it a lot, and I just wanted to be as transparent as possible with, with, the, um, with the real people in the film. I tried to just share as much of my ideas and my concepts as, as I could so that we could really have this, this dialogue of, you know, do you agree with what the film is trying to do? Instead of this idea of like, oh, let me just show up and get your interview and bye, we'll see you later. You know, I'll send you a postcard from, from a film festival. You know, like I wanted this collaboration because it's really difficult, I think, to be telling your trauma over and over and to not have a concept of where it's going and not having agency as well of what you want to share. And, and really what I would tell people was, you know, like we talk about this conquest and this violence and how we've survived it and overcome it. And it's a source of pride as a country. But if you look at what's happening today, it, we are reinventing colonialism in Mexico. We are perpetuating it long after hmm. the, the Spanish soldiers have been gone. There's this systematization of violence and this this use of like violence to like control women, to control the press, to control indigenous communities and isolate them, right? Like there's there's all this all these echoes of colonial violence and, and it's us who are who are doing this. Like we are as a society, you know, like replicating and perpetuating this colonial model and mm. it's really kind of like like schizophrenic because we talk about our, our patriotic pride so much and yet you know with the indigenous communities alone like 68 languages that are at risk of extinction in mexico 
and where is the investment and the pride in, in the current indigenous communities, right? Why are we also focused on this narrative of, of having endured, you know, the, the oppression of the Spanish? It's a very kind of, you know, facade that, that really hides like a lot of violence that regular people are going through at a scale that, that is not really accounted for, you know, like all the cases in the film remain open and, and they're all like one little speck in a universe of disappearances or the murder of journalists. So that, that's what I would talk to them about. And then people would, would accept or not to collaborate. And then we would build together like their scenes with the conquistador. And it, it was a very interesting, you know, way of working because I always would tell them like, okay, next I'm going to talk to this person and to this person. And we would build a, you know, like this vision for a chain of, of, of other testimonies that they're a part of. And now, now that I just came back from Mexico where we did like a, like a really intense tour with the people that are featured in the film, what many of them would tell me is like that they were really grateful to the film for changing the perspective on their stories. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't just like the classic, like let's interview the victim and like, you know, do, do a, do a kind of salacious piece or, or do like a piece that was only Esta about... Esta noche a las ocho. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it was an expansive work of art, right? And like, like people felt celebrated by that, even though they're still in a lot of pain. Rodrigo, what did you learn from this experience? This felt like therapy. Well, I was very excited and nervous when I set off to make this film. I didn't know if it was going to actually work. It was an experiment, right? Like you said, there wasn't a lot of references. Everything was a comedy or everything was like very different from what 499 is. And, and so we didn't know if we had a film. And so I was excited to see that we did, but I was also really like humbled by the process of, of, of myself listening to regular people, right? Just like the conquistador has to listen. Sometimes we as filmmakers have a little bit of that conquistador and we need to learn to listen to people. And the wisdom of the regular people in the film was amazing, you know, like like the way they understood like the, the harm that has come to them and the system that has created it, like the wisdom that they shared with us was so, so amazing. And, you know, like for instance, there's this chapter in the film, chapter three, where, where the conquistador arrives in an indigenous community and he's arrested and then like he meets this poet right and like the poet is a real poet named Sixto Cabrera and and he he knew that I'd been doing interviews with other people you know, along the route and then he said to me well listen I don't really want to do an interview I don't think I need to I think you know I want to speak in poetry because our struggle is our language itself our very language that contains everything about my community and so can I just speak in poetry and, and that listening of, of saying, hey, you're right. Like, let's figure out how to make this work for you. Like, you, that, that's not usual in film. Usually in film, you go for what you need, right? But here he was telling us what he needed and it, it made the film better and it made it much more poignant, right? Like he's speaking in poetry in this other logic and it changes the rhythm of the film. So I feel like I, I learned to listen and to really appreciate those relationships that I have with regular people and also to to learn to let go of like this the very gringo way of telling stories where you you want to find a solution like i'm going to show you a problem and i'm going to show you the solution even if it's a documentary and it's real life 
I'm going to show you the solution. Well, guess what? Like there, there are no solutions to these problems that I can provide. It's a compound answer that we need to build, right? Like to stop feminicides, for instance, we have to address machismo. We have to address the lack of, 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 uh, of justice and access to, to resources. There's so many things, right? And I, and I learned that it's really important to be humble and to not pretend like my film is the center of things. It's the stories of regular people and just honoring their struggle. That, that is empowering right there. You know, that is a, a step forward to building a, a different world. And I, and I had to learn that because I, you know, you get all this pressure in the U.S. especially of like having, having stories that have solutions, that have resolutions, right? And like, I feel like that also erases people because there's all these stories that are going to be left out, you know? There are so many Latinos, Latinxes, that right now want to get into the film business. What kind of stories should Latinx directors be telling today to be inclusive to everybody and to also be compelling? Well, well, I think it's really about not trying to fit in, you know, not trying to please like, like this very vague Hollywood. monster. Yeah, of, of Hollywood. Like, we, you try to please them, you try to figure out how they see you essentially, and to validate this outside gaze of our communities. I think you need to be specific and you need to be personal and you need to be intimate because that stuff resonates across across all cultures. Like if you tell the story of, of your grandma or, or your uncle, you know, who left his family behind or, or even, you know, like something as pedestrian as growing up Latinx, like you know, but you have to do it with love for your community and love for your story. And and love doesn't mean that you tell like a very comfortable, easy story either. It just means that you stay true to that. Um, and I see I see so many folks who are trying to figure out, well, what does the system want and how do I give them what they want? And that's such mm. a waste because I feel like, you know, everybody needs to make a living. But but if but if at the same time, you also want to make something that that has integrity as a work of art, like. You need to be true to yourself and you need to get get rid of these other narratives and and maybe you take inspiration from what's happening in, in latin america maybe you take inspiration from the way that stories are told there where, where there aren't like these very schematic you know uplifting you know narratives that that that, that kind of coddle you know like like the the discomfort of of outsiders especially white outsiders because i think like what we're always thinking about is like, well, what do white people want? You know? And it's like, correct. I, I, I feel like, like the, the thing that white people need is to, 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 you know, break out of their universe. That's what they need. They might not always want it. And, and so why are we trying to comfort them? Why are we trying to make it easy for them? You know? How did you get this movie done? What were the integral parts to make this movie a reality? Well, you know, the core part of the film was like having allies that were in love with the concept, having a DP that like brought on like this anamorphic widescreen look that really like made, you know, reality and fiction come together. And we were using these like old school lenses that were, you know, they were warped and they had a lot of character. And, and then having an actor that was like down to like do this method. That you know, guy looked like he came out of the history books, man. I was like, this dude looks like he was the, from the 1400s and they have tape on him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and he was he was down. He had never come to to Mexico at all. He he didn't 
He didn't know the country. He didn't know me. And he came and he did like a month long of like, you know, shooting in sequence, like, you know, this method acting kind of process and experience of, you know, no, no real script, you know, and I think me encantó, in, in, me encantó. in terms of the funding, what happened was that I had gotten a Guggenheim um, grant and, uh, and I, and I, and I got it for a different project. And, and I had like some money set aside, you know, for like living expenses. And as I saw that nobody was really like going for $4.99, so I was pitching it everywhere. And, and, and eventually I was like, dude, if I don't have like something to show, no one's ever going to get it. So we need to shoot this thing because time is running out. You know, it takes a long time to find and finish a film. So we went and did the shoot with that money, with some money from, from friends and, and money from, uh, from the producers too. And so like, you know, it was a very like shoestring budget kind of shoot. But we May I ask we how much a movie like this costs to make? Let's just say it should cost, you know, like two, three hundred thousand dollars just to shoot it, right? But it right. it costs far less than that. I don't want to say the amount just so that my team doesn't feel embarrassed, but but it was a tiny amount. But I think what really drove the movie forward was this idea that people were invested in it, right? Like when you have a photographer that is so invested that he's only gonna shoot with natural light and you have an actor that's really down, and then you have all these people that are open to collaborating with you the magic starts to happen. And, and, you know, I started to build from there. Then we got support from Tribeca after we had like the, the footage and we got support from Sundance and we got support from the Mexican Film Institute, you know, and all of that was like a team effort of writing and pitching and editing. And then I got like a really fascinating editorial team. I got a young guy from Mexico city who lives out here in, in the Bay area, Daniel. And then we connected with Andrea who's in Chile and she has a huge, you know, track record of working in film and documentary. And, and so we have this like really interesting dynamic as a team mm. because two Mexicans and a Chilena, and she, she had this perspective from Latin America. So she would push us more towards a place where the film would resonate beyond just being Mexican. Right. You mentioned yeah. that you had been pitching this all over the place. How many pitches did you do? before you got the yes? I think like with, with some of the institutions, there was just a conversation that was like, okay, update us, update us, let's see where it's going. And then, you know, with others, it was like very straightforward. Like with the Mexican Film Institute, it was like really about like the merits of the project and the potential, right? But they have a different criteria, right? They're looking for projects of quality and, and they're, not, they're not supposed to pick like, you know, which are the most commercial or which are the most experimental. They're just supposed to pick quality, right? And so it was interesting once people started seeing like materials, people started to get very excited about the film, you know, once they actually saw that it worked. But but if you explain the concept to people, it, it feels like it could be really weird and kooky, right? And so like, I think that's another tip for filmmakers. It's like you sometimes just have to jump out and do things. You have to make them mm -hmm. happen and you have to figure out how do I make them happen with resources that I do have, not like the pie in the sky, two, three million dollars like that nobody right. ever gets for their first film. And, and so like, you know, it's just a, a great actor with, with a very good costume design, like, you know, and, and very interesting cinematography. And, and that made it work. 
we didn't need special effects. We didn't need anything else. And I think sometimes these simple ideas can detonate a lot of really cool results, you know? And, and so filmmakers have to think like that, like forget what you're seeing on, you know, on, on your streamer of choice. Like if you're, if you're beginning your career or if you're outside the system for you to get that kind of budget, you could spend 10 years trying to do that. And in those 10 years, you won't, you won't make a, you won't make anything. So you have to figure out how to make, make lemonade with what you got. The, the movie really talks about that, that exploration of that trauma from colonialism that they've had and that it's still perpetuated uh, in a form of neo-colonialism in the last 500 years in Mexico. When you look at Mexico and the deep dive that you've done research-wise into these in, into the effects that colonialism has had on Mexico, how do you see that in parallel to America? How would you parallel Mexico's situation with colonialism in the United States and the animosity they were going through here currently? Exactly. I think like uh, I would start there with the anger that people feel, some people in our country feel when we try to uh, talk about uh, things like critical race theory or the 1619 Project or just the, just the general history of our country. And I think it shows you the power of history that people hold on to it so much because these narratives drive us forward. The stories that we tell about ourselves, about where we came from, are very, very powerful. And so something as simple as acknowledging the fact of slavery like can detonate like a breakdown in, in the stories people tell of themselves in this country, right? And I think we need to understand that history is not independent. History is something that we build, that we write together, right? And so like we need to intervene in the writing of our history. It isn't so, so many people when, when it comes to this, these arguments talk about, well, why do we need to rehash the past? Well, because it has a, pre, a presence in the present, right? It's the, it's the present past, right? It's not slavery like it was in the 1800s, but it is like, you know, mass incarceration. It's not, you know, like, like racism like it was in 1847 against the, mm -hmm. the Mexicans. But look at the parallels, for instance, between the rhetoric of Trump and the rhetoric of Polk, you know, like the president that was uh, running the invasion of Mexico in 1847. There was this debate of like, are Mexicans going to pollute the soul of America? Our Puritan Protestant soul, are we uh, going to stain and rot the core soul of this country, right? Like, that was one of the arguments why many people wanted to pull out of Mexico and just take the territories that didn't have that many people or that had native communities that they had planned to exterminate, right? And so I feel like, like it breaks the way we see the world once we open ourselves up to a different history because then, it, then you're, you're having to grapple with, you came from a different place. And I understand why many people don't want to like even acknowledge or process the fact that George Washington was a slave owner, right? For just as one example, because then all of a sudden, like, where do I come from? I'm supposed to come from a very good place, a pure place, right? A, mm -hmm. I'm supposed to come from the superheroes, not the supervillains, right? And so I, I feel like we have a long ways to go in terms of educating ourselves as a country and really thinking about our history in a complex way, where it's not just like, are we good or are we bad? You know, we build it. We're building it. So whatever we feel about that history, we can address it right now and we can make our, our, our communities better 
you know, if we address it and we need to be willing to do that because the more that we hold on to these like, you know, superhero stories of, of, of good guys and bad guys, it, it, we're going to stay divided and we're not actually going to ever acknowledge like the truth that people have lived through. And, you know, the U.S. in a way has a lot of a lot of history that that is being fed to us, right? Like we're supposed to be so proud of our country, but that pride is based on on not acknowledging any mistakes, and and that's so damaging, right? Like it makes us so inflexible, right? Like we cannot be proud of our country unless it's pure, right? And and so people feel offended when these issues come up. So I hope that 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 you know, four ninety nine in a way helps us, you know, push us to to mature just a little bit more as a, as a country and to, to be willing to have these hard conversations. We need to grow up, you know? We can't stay in this infantilized, you know, reading of our past. The name of the movie is 499. The director is Rodrigo Reyes. Rodrigo, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much. Just before I wrap up here, here are three Latin tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Linda, Tokisha featuring Rosalia. Reptil, Duplat featuring Soy Emilia. Estadio Estudio, Clubs. That's it for episode 160 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Rodrigo Reyes and Tomas Jimenez for being on the show. And if you like this episode, please share with your friends and have them subscribe and leave a review. You'd be helping us reach many more people. If you'd like to get in touch with me, reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.